0: Matthew chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 18 through 25 again this morning. We'll actually probably camp out here for at least one more week, maybe a couple more. Two weeks is Christmas. Um, I pray that you would be able to join us that morning. We'll worship here together. We're excited to worship on Christmas. And I think, what, every seven years it happens that Christmas is on a Sunday. It's a great way for us to express of our love for Jesus, and come together as the body of Christ, as an extended family in Jesus, and to, um, and to, uh, to, to demonstrate praise and exalt the name of Christ. So this morning, we're, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, 18-25 again, we're going to think about a few things, but let's rewind and talk about where we have been for the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we discussed the genealogy of Jesus, right, in Matthew chapter 1, Verses 1 through 17, and we talked about the importance as to why Jesus, or why Matthew records Jesus' genealogy in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, primarily to show us this devastation and this dysfunction that existed in Jesus' line, to show us his kingship, um, and to demonstrate to us um, that the originator of all things now had an origin. And that drove us then into verses eighteen through twenty-five, where we talked about sort of this thirty-thousand-feet concept last week about how Jesus is fully God and and fully man. Um, and we talked about our own humanity and 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 His complete humanity, and then also His complete divinity. In that He can make intercession on our behalf before God the Father. And if either one of those things isn't completely true, then we cannot have right relationship with God the Father. If Jesus is fully God and fully man, then the mediation that Jesus came to establish is possible because he is fully God and fully man. And that that also points us to this understanding that comes to us throughout all of Scripture that salvation is from God alone. That salvation is something that only happens in and through God. So this mediator has come to earth and God has made a way for us And that's what we've kind of considered for the last few weeks. And this morning, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit and get a little bit more into the nitty-gritty of this text. Talk about a little bit of the historical background behind it. And then how that points us to um, some of the things that we're going to see come later in Matthew's Gospel. So, um, let's read this text together then this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. I'll read this for us. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So when we look at this text, we start to see then that Joseph is sort of the, the, the primary means that we see these events happening through. If you flip over to the book of La- the Book of uh, Luke, um, Luke wrote Acts, if you flip over to the book of Luke, you're gonna see more of Mary's perspective of this whole event. Um, it's a little more robust, uh, but here in Matthew, we see through uh, we see clearly through Joseph's eyes these events. And we want to pay attention to Joseph because Matthew pays attention to Joseph, right? He gives us this perspective for a purpose. He shows us what Joseph was thinking and what his plans were and how he was going to proceed for a purpose. So that then drives us this morning to our big idea. Just to think about this text in general through Joseph's eyes. Matthew records that Joseph was a just man. Reorienting his readers to incorporate compassion into their understanding of the coming kingdom. That'll make more sense as we look at this. But Matthew records that Joseph was a just man, reorienting his readers to incorporate compassion into their understanding of the coming kingdom. And so there's really no more apt thing to talk about at Christmas time than compassion. And we'll get there. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the book issues. But let's think about some of the historical significance here in this text. Let's think about some of the ways that, that, that this would be happening and maybe some of the things that Joseph was, was thinking about. So we see then that Joseph is betrothed to Mary, right? What does that mean? That's not a word that we use in, in our vocabulary typically, right? We don't talk about betrothal often in 21st century America. It's not, it's not a concept that we're familiar with. So if, if, if you are married in here, um, your, your experience probably looked significantly different than Mary and Joseph's, right? If, if you, you probably dated for a little bit in your 20s or somewhere in there, um, and you, you maybe got engaged then for maybe six months to a year, somewhere in there, it's typically an accepted range. Sometimes it's earlier, sometimes it's later. It doesn't really matter. You get engaged, you put a ring on it. All the single ladies. So, <laughs> did I just quote Beyonce? So, um, so what what happens here is that then then we get married. But there's a ceremony, right? And then, um, but but the engagement period is sort of this informal commitment that you have, right? It's this informal commitment you have in twenty first century America. There are emotional things in play, but there's no legal political ramifications of that. If that, if that agreement is broken, right? You can break that and walk away and say, we can, we can live with this, right? Again, it's probably going to have some emotional repercussions, but, but that's, that's, that is that's not the case for where Mary and Joseph lived or they existed in first century Palestine. So their betrothal look looked probably significantly different. So Mary um, Mary was probably 12 to 14 years old. She was very young. By, by our standards, this is the typical age that someone would be married it would be rare for a, a, a woman to reach age 16 before she was married it would be rare for that to happen Joseph was probably somewhere between 18 and 20 probably not a whole lot older um, pretty pretty young by our standards um, their, their their marriage would be arranged although probably involved their own consent their houses, their households were probably pretty closely tied together, um, and they had kids that fell in those age ranges, and so they, the, the families got together and would say, hey, um, would it be okay? Do you think that this would work? And then they would turn to Mary and Joseph and say to them, Is this, does this seem okay to you? And typically the answer would be, that yes, yes, this seems, this seems okay so, that looks significantly different most of the time when we find someone to marry. I didn't know my in-laws prior to meeting my wife. I, I met my wife, we started dating, and then I met the parents, right? That's typically not vice versa in our culture. So, and then this betrothal period would probably last about a year, right? It would last about one year, and we would have... We would have this period, but but there's this period in there, in this betrothal time, that lasts about a year where this is is formal. This is formal commitment. It's not informal commitment. It's not just a, a, a verbal agreement. It's actually like a written out agreement between these two parties. It would have represented this formal commitment that would have ended in marriage, but if broken, would have had some serious legal repercussions in their society. Which is why Matthew records then um, in verse 19 and and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her we're thinking to ourselves well why during a betrothal is there divorce because there's this formal commitment attached prior to consummation prior to their consummation of the marriage this this betrothal was, in some sense, marriage. So that's where the story for us, as we look at Mary and Joseph, begins. And so we start to get inside Joseph's head when we, when we read what Matthew records in verses 18 through 25. We start to get inside of his head. Um, so here's this 18 to 20-year-old guy, right, who's put in a really tough situation culturally, right? Some of us probably have been put in some pretty tough situations culturally, where, where he finds the woman who he's betrothed to pregnant. And he doesn't understand why. I mean, he has, I mean, jumped to conclusions, he gets it, right? Which is sort of why we see these actions laid out. But if we think about 18 to 20-year-old men, we start to think about the way that their, develop, their own development is happening. We start to think about the fact that it's probably not until age 25 that they have a fully formed frontal lobe, and they don't know how to express their emotions, and they don't know how to do some of these things that are, that are regular um, for, 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 for adults who are put in some of these significant situations. So there's this, this formal commitment that he finds himself in, and right? he's trying to find out, how should I express myself emotionally? I need to make a basic judgment. I need to make a basic call about this. And the way that Matthew writes about him is, is as someone who does this in an upright manner. But it looks a little bit different than maybe what would have been expected in his position. So this situation he finds himself in, he's in this formal commitment she finds out she's pregnant. Immediately, the thought is, well, she's committed adultery. Well, she's committed adultery. That's, that's how you get pregnant. Before they came together, she was found to be with child, and he thinks to himself, well, she's. Committed adultery. And so we flip back to understand the law. We flip back to Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24. And we understand uh, that that in this instance, if there's a betrothed woman who is found to be with child, the prescription in the law is capital punishment, is, is to stone that woman to death. Now... Mary wasn't in jeopardy of that because of the cultural situation. They were occupied people. Rome would not allow that to happen. They would not allow the Jews to exercise capital punishment. And yet, there would be a significant amount of shame that would be brought upon Mary based on this event. If you think about how Jesus was crucified, he was crucified by a Roman means, not by a Jewish means. So a betrothed woman who was caught in adultery would be publicly shamed in this culture. She would have no way to generate income. She would have no way to generate income. Women didn't work, right? She would no way to generate income. Her home was her work. There would be no way for her to do that. She would be cast out by her society, by her family, by um, by the people around her. If her parents chose to continue to support her, that that source of care would die with them. Um, so, as a single woman, as then a single woman who is caught in adultery during betrothal, she would be she would fall within the definition of what the Bible would call a widow. We think of a widow as a woman who has her, her husband dies, but someone who is married and finds herself then outside of the confines of marriage, the New Testament defines that individual as a widow as well. And so that's why we get New Testament statements like something that James says, where he says that true religious expression is found in the care for widows and orphans. And why? Because they were the most marginalized people. There was no one to care for a woman who was betrothed and then removed through divorce. So Matthew records then that Joseph sought to, in verse 19, sought to divorce Her quietly. Why? Because because Matthew writes he was unwilling to put her to shame. And to subject her to all that came as a public divorce woman was something that would bring her a significant amount of shame. Now, Matthew records that. That, that Joseph was a just man, maybe your Bible says righteous, and that's kind of where we want to camp out then this morning after considering this historical context, this historical situation that Joseph finds himself in, in verse 19, and her husband Joseph being a just man or a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to d- divorce her quietly. So we need to consider then what the Bible is talking about when it says something about justice and righteousness. What is it that the Bible is talking about? Why is Matthew calling Joseph a just and righteous person? Well, first of all, he was seeking to live according to God's law, right? But there's something more here happening. Okay, so just a quick definition for you then um, of righteousness. In biblical thought, the idea of justice or righteousness generally expresses conformity to God's will in all areas of life. Law, government, covenant loyalty, ethical integrity, or gracious actions. When humans adhere to God's will as expressed in his law, they are considered just or righteous. Jesus taught that those who conform their lives to his teaching are also righteous. So what does that mean? That simply means that understanding what God's will is, understanding what God's requirements are, and then living according to those requirements. So the declaration then that Matthew makes about Joseph, that he is a just or a righteous man, means that he understood God's will and God's requirements and lived according to them. And so he's kind of put in this sticky situation then, right? He couldn't move forward with a marriage without taking action because of his personal righteousness, but he valued human dignity and chose not to seek public shame for a woman, although that was completely within reason. He didn't seek public shame for a woman who, although all indicators pointed to it, seemed to have shamed him. And some have suggested that his reticence to to, to, to shame, to his unwillingness to put her to shame, um, doesn't have anything to do with the statement that he's just... Or righteous, and yet at the same time, I think it's hard to read that when you look at verse 19. They seem to be intricately tied together. So, this is where we're going then this morning. Matthew records Joseph as being a righteous or a just man, but there's something more. So, when we get to first century Palestine, when we get to this area, when we get to this context, we've got these whole factions of people who exist. Solely to uphold the law and consider themselves righteous by doing it. But in seeking the law and seeking it exclusively, they run over people. They lay up heavy burdens on people and remove the idea of compassion from the equation. So when we look here at where Matthew records that Joseph is a righteous man. What he wants us to see then is righteousness does not just look like something that is contained within, but something that also finds its expression, finds its expression in the way others are considered. So Matthew heralds this kingdom where self generated righteousness is not the focus, but external righteousness that seeks to express submission to the king by demonstrating compassion. This is what Joseph is doing. He sees Mary, she commits a sin against him, or so he perceives that she does. He is a just man, but he's unwilling to put her to shame. He expresses compassion. The righteousness that Joseph expresses is different than the righteousness that would have been heralded in that day. So Matthew actually picks up this concept throughout all of his gospel. One very simple example is when we get to chapter 25, Matthew. We get to chapter 25, and Jesus is talking about final things. And Matthew records Jesus is saying this. He wants to point out the expression of righteousness that finds itself in in compassion. This is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in glory and the angels with him... Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, "Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you by the before the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and he gave me food. I was thirsty." and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you in, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? The king will answer them, truly. I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed in the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me, then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew lays the foundation for this exact passage in the way that he talks about Joseph. A just and a righteous man who also showed compassion regardless of the circumstance. He demonstrated compassion to what soon was in his eyes to become the most marginalized person in society, this woman, who he perceived had committed adultery against him, was in fact going to become one of the most marginalized people. And yet, he saw her in a light; he saw the image of God placed upon her, and demonstrated compassion to her. And so, what does this mean? What does this look like? What does it? What does this mean for us? The compassion that Joseph has here. Obviously, the story shifts for you, right? The story changes. And it all works together to show us what it is that righteousness is, an upholding of the law, and everything required by God, given to us, to view others as more important than ourselves. We've all been shown just this incredible amount of compassion in the person of Jesus Christ, and it is work. This is not a compromise to the gospel's requirements, right? This is not a compromise, but it is the gospel. Somehow, God re- remains perfectly just by requiring his people to keep those requirements that he gives to us. Despite the fact that we are incapable of keeping those requirements in of ourselves, he sent Jesus into the world. That's what this is heralding. Chapter 1 is heralding a coming Christ. Jesus coming into the world. He sent Jesus into the world to perfectly keep those requirements and then if we, the incapable, trust the incapable, then we, we are made capable. So picture this. It's time for you to take your driver's test. Okay? Get in the car. You back up and you crash. Right? Anybody do that? Yeah. No? Okay, good. I feel more comfortable driving today, then. So you hop in the car, you get out, the instructor gets in, you back out, you crash. The instructor says, let's give it another shot. You screwed it up, let's give it another shot. You hop into the next car, same result. The instructor says, let's give it another shot. Why not? Let's give it another shot. You seem like a smart guy. You seem like a smart guy. I think you got this this time. Happens again, same result. The instructor looks at you and says, okay, you're going to keep crashing. And if I pass you, you'll probably go out from here and crash every single car that you ever get into for the rest of your life. But there was a guy who perfectly completed the driver's test and is passing and is passing his perfect score onto you. So despite the fact that you're going to leave here and keep crashing, your record will always be clean. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. We get into our car, our proverbial car every day, our broken, sinful body, and we crash. We get out of bed and we crash. We are incapable of keeping God's requirements that are laid out before us. And yet, we as people have been given a clean record. God looks at Jesus, and He sees the righteousness that He demands from everyone. And if we trust Jesus, that righteousness is our own. If we the incapable trust the capable, then we are made capable. We know that the story again it shifts for Joseph. It shifts away from this. And yet, verse 19 isn't meant for us to say, oh my gosh, look at this. What is Joseph doing? Divorcing her? What a jerk. What it's meant to communicate to us is, no, he is a just man. And Matthew is setting up this understanding of what it means to be righteous. This angel appears to him and says, Don't fear. Your betrothed is conceived by supernatural means. But his decision to act justly, or his decision to act righteously. Came prior to the intervention, and Matthew feels compelled to record it because of Joseph's commitment to God's requirements given in His law. And yet, his response is compassionate. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter thirteen, verses eight through ten: "O, no one, anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law." For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. There is, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the exact challenge that we face every day of our lives. This is the exact challenge that we face every day of our lives. No, no doubt that it comes up this season, right? No doubt that it's going to come. You undoubtedly will be in the same room uh, with someone that really frustrates you. At an office Christmas party, at a family gathering, or here. We're crying a lot for here. Some of you think that people owe you something despite the fact that Paul writes, owe oh, no one anything. And some of, some of you feel like you owe something to everyone. But love, Paul says, owe oh, no one anything except to love each other. This is the fulfillment of the law. So when we get here, we see Joseph, and we see his... His unwillingness to put Mary to shame, to recognize that she as an individual is created in God's image and to understand that she is quickly going to become, if things carry through the way that he thinks they are prior to this divine intervention, if he sees these things carried through in this way, she will become the most marginalized in society. He demonstrates compassion by being unwilling to put her to shame. So no longer is righteousness something that is seen as just a simply, a wooden, inside the box task list given to complete and uphold the law in the way that God gives it to us. But it is seen as a divine expression of love given to us as Paul writes in Romans 13, 8-10. If we look at the commands of Christ, if we look at the commands given to us in Scripture, and we are keeping those, but we don't have any love. If we don't love our neighbor, if we don't see the people around us as created in God's image, as those who possess an identity that is found in Him or can be found in Him if they trust Jesus, then we are fulfilling nothing. The fact of the matter is that we need to walk away from here and go about Christmas season and reflect on the understanding that we've been shown a huge, just an incredible amount of compassion in Jesus Christ. This is what it means to believe the truth of the gospel that we as people are incapable of demonstrating compassion the requirements given to us in God's law, the requirements given to us as as the individuals who, who who are broken, who are beat up, who inhabit this body, this flesh, this body of death. Like, the understanding is that we are incapable of generating our own righteousness. And even as we sang in that last song, we sang in Cornerstone, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless stand before the throne. In and of ourselves, we are incapable of doing that. We are called to do it. We're not capable of it. The gospel is that we look to Jesus, the one who did it. The one who, the one who has the ability to live perfectly, righteously, to uphold the law, to take into consideration everyone, every single person the face of the earth was in the back of Jesus' mind as He walked the road of Calvary, as He went to the cross, as He died on our behalf. The sin of the world is washed away through His blood. The righteousness of Christ can be ours if we put our trust in Him. So, this is the challenge Then, as we look then this morning at particular verse 19, we think about Joseph is this just man, unwilling to put her to shame. How many opportunities do we get throughout the course of our week to look at individuals, to demonstrate righteousness, to uphold the law of love, to show them the compassion that Jesus has shown us? It is an overflow of who we are. It is an overflow of what he has done for us. We don't do this begrudgingly. We don't walk around and say, I guess I need to show compassion to someone. We do it because we've seen the immense compassion shown to us in Jesus Christ. So, as we go from here, I pray that this week that this is where our minds would be. This is where our hearts would go. We would see this. We would see that Jesus' birth heralds this for us. Our righteousness that could be ours because He upheld the law perfectly and loved us in a way that is unfathomable. The last thing that I would say this morning is this is this is primarily finds its expression in the way that we talk about people. The way that we think about people frequently comes out of our mouth we're frustrated by people in general we will speak about people in a way that's not god honoring. if we don't like the way we have personal preferences and we desire those to see those met above worshiping an exalted Christ in the corporate worship gathering like this we'll be free to express those things those things come out of a heart that has not experienced the forgiveness and compassion of Jesus Christ. They call us to a place where we need to repent, where we need to turn from our sin and acknowledge that righteousness comes from Jesus alone. So I pray this week that as we would consider the things that we say about people, the way that we think about people, the way we act towards people. I pray that we would recognize this very compassion. Let's pray.